Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Republican candidate for New York Governor Congressman Lee Zeldin appeared this week with other federal and state officials at an Albany County farm to urge Democrats in power in state government to reverse a plan to phase in a 40-hour work week for farm laborers. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. The state's Farm Laborers Wage Board in December approved a plan to end the 60-hour-per-week overtime threshold for farm workers and replace it over the next decade with a 40-hour work week. Under the changes, farm owners would have to pay overtime to farmers who put in more than 40 hours in a week. The board meets next on September 6th to finalize the plan. Good morning. Farm owners who gathered at the Stanton family's farm about a dozen miles from the state capitol predict that the new rule would force many farms to go out of business. They say it would also mean an end to long-held traditions like apple picking, local farmers markets, and roadside farm stands. Peter Tenike is the longtime owner of Indian Ladder Farms, which is now run by his daughter. The 84-year-old says he worries about the future of his apple orchards and other small farms if the changes go through. First, you're going to lose the weakest farms or go by the wayside. The next thing you're going to lose is the next generation of farmers. People are not going to go into this business they're not going to continue on. Long Island Congressman Lee Zeldin, who is running for governor on the Republican ticket, says the changes hurt the workers as well as the farm owners. And he says his opponent in the race, Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul, and the Democratic supermajority in the state legislature are too beholden to the organized labor groups that lobbied for the 40-hour limit. Our farmers, our farm workers, are all getting collectively screwed right now by one-party Democratic rule, these supermajorities that right now making all of us pay more going forward, resulting in what is already a labor worker shortage that is only going to get worse. The state's AFL-CIO and other unions have said that it's only fair that farm workers are guaranteed a 40-hour week, just like all other workers. The New York Civil Liberties Union says the decision not to include farm workers in the national overtime laws created in the 1940s is based on racism and the need for then-President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to gain support from representatives in the Jim Crow South. Sergio Navarrete, a seasonal farm worker from Mexico, spoke against the 40-hour limit. He says some of his colleagues have not returned to New York under the present 60-hour workweek rules because they can work longer hours and earn more money in other states. He says he needs to make as much as possible to support his family, including a daughter who is in college. He spoke through a translator. I only work here for six months of the year, and I need more hours so that when I go back to Mexico, I have money for my family. I didn't come here to sleep. I came here to work. 
Governor Hochul has not yet said whether she agrees with the wage board's decision. It was created as part of a law enacted in 2019 by former Governor Andrew Cuomo and the legislature as part of a plan to increase pay for farm workers. In a statement, Hochul spokesperson Justin Henry says the governor has not made any statements for or against lowering the overtime requirement because the wage board has not yet delivered its report. In the state budget, Hochul doubled the employee tax credit for farmers, and she and the legislature created a new tax credit. It would essentially cover the costs of paying overtime if the 60-hour threshold is lowered. The budget also increased to 20 percent a tax credit for capital farming investments. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government, politics. I'm David Gustina. The Legislative Gazette's political observer, Alan Shartok, spoke with Blair Horner, the executive director of the New York Public Interest Research Group, or NYPERC, this week. He began by asking Blair about climate change and whether New York is doing well legislatively on the issue. I mean, the short answer is no. <laughs> because the the amount of work that has to be done is so significant. And, uh, you know, as listeners who will pay attention to public policy know, uh, the Senate has acted to, uh, U.S. Senate has acted to deal with uh, uh, climate issues through the, uh, uh, you know, the Reduction Act. And that's going to be hundreds of billions of dollars focused on, you know, new tax credits and stuff to move people from fossil fuel-powered homes and vehicles uh, to um, uh, electric. And, you know, that's going to be sort of the shift. New York State is doing the same thing. New York has aggressive goals. Um, but, you know, we really have to amp it up. There has to be a lot that has to happen because we've seen it all across the world. The world's on fire. The planet's heating up. That's not going to change. Um, we, have to be, we have to act now to, um, you know, limit the catastrophic damages that are going to occur over the rest of the century. It's really, I mean, it's an existential threat. It doesn't get much more dangerous than what we're experiencing. And action has to happen. The nation, the world has waited too long, largely due to the oil companies, you know, sort of blocking uh, environmental reforms for the last 40 years. Um, but because of that, we're in a terrible situation, and we're just trying to keep it from getting catastrophic. So is New York different from other states? Is New York different from the nation? Is there something that's going on here, Blair Horner, that really sets us apart? Well, I mean, in terms of environmental policy, Washington has been stuck in gridlock for so long. The country really had to rely on the big states to move the environmental agenda forward. So California and New York, if they act in concert, can make a big difference. And so the reliance on non-fossil fuel-powered cars, for example, is the so-called California standard, in which New York has adopted, uh, allows uh, states to sort of take the lead. And if California and New York are not taking the lead, then the country doesn't really go anywhere. So New York has very aggressive goals on climate change, is trying to focus its energies on uh, excuse the pun, uh, on, uh, you know, yeah. relying on more alternative energy sources. But it's, the price tag is staggering. It's going to be 
billions and billions of dollars annually that the state is going to have to spend to make roads more um, uh, adaptive to bigger storms, uh, to deal with rising sea levels, which are going to impact New York City and downstate. The cost is going to be staggering. And that part hasn't been figured out. And uh, that could be figured out, but it hasn't been figured out yet by the state. So New York has to lead. Do we have the leadership here, and we have a coming uh, gubernatorial election, of course, do we have the present leadership that will carry us through? Yeah, I mean, it takes many to tango in Albany, like it takes three. Uh, the governor, uh, Governor Hochul, her predecessor, Governor Cuomo, and their predecessors have all sort of discussed the need for acting on climate change. It's not like the state's run by a bunch of climate deniers. And legislation was passed a few years ago that said very aggressive goals. But it's easy to say goals for the year 2030 and the year 2040 and the year 2050 when you're being, you've been elected in 2016, right? I mean, so... Uh, Right now, the goals are there, but the steps are not all in place to achieve those goals. And that can always turn back. You know, you could, if people who don't believe in climate science get elected to run the state, a lot of those steps could be reversed. As you see the coming gubernatorial election, Blair Horner, coming up, have people taken positions? Yeah, I mean, again, you're right that, you know, the election can make all the difference. I mean, Governor Hochul's positions, I think, are pretty clear, and she's not pretending that something's not happening. Representative Zeldin has been sort of all over the place on some of these issues. But he's from Long Island, and so I'm sure that he is environmentally sensitive to the rising sea level issues because that affects his current constituents. So I don't, again, to get elected, for a Republican to get elected in New York, you have to sort of build a coalition that includes a lot of independents and even some Democrats to get the votes. And so he would have to adopt that positions that would probably be more like Governor Pataki's positions were uh, years ago. And so I don't think that uh, a Governor Zeldin administration would reverse environmental policy, but they may take their foot off the gas. And we really have no choice but to move as aggressively as possible and to figure out ways how to pay for it. I mean, that's really, to me, the big issue that hasn't been resolved is how does the state of New York pay for its ambitious climate goals? Someone has to pay. We think the oil companies should pay because it's their problem. They're, they're the ones who set this whole situation up. But in terms of state policy, that issue hasn't been resolved. But you don't really think that the oil companies will come forward and say, it's really our responsibility and we're going to have to handle this. Do you? No, no, they're, they're not. I mean, they've been terrible. They're like... Their actions have been on, a, uh, on sort of a scale that are unprecedented in human history. They've known for 40, 50 years about the problem uh, and have done everything humanly possible to stop progress to deal with the problem. And as a result, um, millions of people will die. And so their, their behavior is so irresponsible. It really will go down in history, assuming we have a history as the worst example of uh, corporate irresponsibility in human history. And so we think they should pay for it. We think Governor Hochul in the legislature or Governor Zeldin in the legislature next year should put them on the hook to make them pay for it in a way that they can't transfer the cost onto consumers. The Legislative Gazette's political observer Alan Shartog with Blair Horner, the executive director of the New York Public Interest Research Group.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustino. New York U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is calling on President Biden to invoke the Defense Production Act to increase the supply of monkeypox vaccine. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard. There are more than 6,000 confirmed cases of monkeypox in the U.S., more than a quarter in New York. On Thursday, the Biden administration declared MPV a public health emergency. The declaration makes available more federal resources to fight the virus, including the development and distribution of vaccines, which are currently in short supply. A day earlier, U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, a Democrat, hosted a virtual press conference with health professionals urging the president to invoke the Defense Production Act to increase supply. We need a lot more vaccines, and we need them fast. New York Governor Kathy Hochul in July signed an executive order declaring a state disaster emergency in response to the outbreak. The order is intended to increase testing and boost vaccine distribution. New York is expected to receive 110,000 new doses of monkeypox vaccine from the federal government over the next several weeks, bringing the total to 170,000. State Health Commissioner Dr. Mary Bassett says the state is targeting its distribution. There are Uh, vaccine distribution opportunities available to most of the counties. Uh, Additionally, um, you know, we're working to reach out to groups that we know are at higher risk. Uh, But the, the bottom line is that we need more vaccine. No one is arguing with that. Although spread of the virus in the U.S. is primarily affecting gay men, Dr. Jay Varma, professor of population health studies at Cornell, says there's no biological reason preventing it from spreading among the general public. And he says even if the U.S. vaccinates enough people to stem the outbreak, the disease is spreading in other countries. And if there's anything that Ebola and Zika and COVID have taught us is that Diseases don't stay in any one place. They always go around the world. Amanda Babine, executive director of Equality NY, says another part of the government's response needs to be education. There's a lot of miseducation out there on who exactly, um, as we know, um, it's affecting um, and who it can and cannot affect. A lot of misinformation on people thinking or talking about this as an STI, um, which it is not. Um, And so I think, you know, what we really need to be focusing on is making sure that people understand how they can, you know, contract this and how to keep themselves safe. Gillibrand explained that manufacturers have been identified and invoking the law would allow the country to build up its national stockpile of vaccine. The DPA gives the president powers to allocate materials, services and facilities and award contracts that take priority over any other contract to promote the national defense. Um, In this case, much like the invocations of the DPA for COVID, the law could be used to defend the country against future spread of the virus. This week, the New York Times reported a 20 million dose stockpile of smallpox vaccine that is also effective against monkeypox was allowed to expire. Asked about the situation on Wednesday, Gillibrand said she's pushing for legislation that would create a 24-7 co-located working group for national security agencies to better respond to emerging health threats. And so I don't think it's a criticism of this administration. I think it's just we're not built for pandemics and we have not created the infrastructure to respond quickly to these kinds of uh, fast um, contracting diseases. So we need to rebuild how we look at these types of threats. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. 
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Back with us on the Legislative Gazette is Dr. Lynn Parodnik, a medical marijuana doctor in Westchester County, New York, who joins us to talk about the cannabis industry. Welcome, Lynn. Thanks, David. It's great to be back. Lynn, last time we talked about how expensive it is to become an owner of a recreational marijuana business in New York, and it's about a million dollars just to set up the business. And even experts advise not to own your own building because on the federal level, marijuana is still illegal and they could seize your property. So if we follow that forward, should we see any movement on the federal level, for example, to open up banking so that people can keep their funds from marijuana sales in an FDIC-insured account that would certainly open up floodgates, wouldn't it, in New York? Now your sure property, would. Your property is an asset. Right. But federally, I don't think this is going to happen. Um, what a shame, because these are legitimate businesses. They're operating under really, really strict guidelines. They're doing it, and yet they can't have bank accounts. Oh, they can pay taxes. That's necessary. But they're not allowed to have bank accounts. One way out of this is credit unions. Credit unions are allowed to work with dispensaries. So people looking for space, many of them speak with the potential landlord, and some landlords are actually refinancing their buildings so that their friends who want to get dispensaries in there will do so. I had a really nice contact in Bedford. A patient wanted to basically give me the space, and he'd come smile and light up after work every day. But Bedford opted out, so that's off the books. No way can we do that. And then if you look at the rates that these landlords are getting, it's really crazy what these spaces can rent for, especially in Manhattan. It's just crazy doing business in Manhattan, especially this business because it's all new. There will also be several um, delivery businesses. So when a dispensary is up and running, they can have delivery So there's lots and lots of moving pieces and lots of jobs being created if we just look one layer below. I want to switch to the issue of the medicinal qualities of marijuana. You're a medical marijuana doctor. We certainly will have that separation in the market where you'll see the regular recreational lines, and then you'll have the medical patients who will get preference and also not be taxed on their purchases. But We've just recently seen a major sports figure in the news who is through a trial in Russia. That's W. Oh, the poor girl, one w- cartridge, and w- she can be right. WNBA star Brittany Griner, right? And she admitted to it. She said, "You know, I had this in my. I made a mistake. I made a mistake." Now, there's a whole article, seven pages in the New York Times, which says, mm-hmm. "Lynn, why pros like Brittany Griner choose cannabis for pain?" And many, many reasons. one after another in here. Sean Kemp, who played his NBA career before they began testing for marijuana use, said, I was able to go home, smoke pot. It was able to benefit my body, calm my body down. And he said the drug seemed to help with inflammation in his knees and joints. Brittany Griner, of course, we have who is using it. And many, many other uh, NFL and oh, yeah. other sports players have either been uh, fined in some cases suspended over the years for using it, and yet it's an all-too-common medicinal use. Sure. It's very... Athletes, there's a huge, huge market for this. When I was in San Francisco in December, I had people, like, giving me envelopes of cannabis that would be appropriate pre-sports, post-sports, you name it. 
And I'm looking at this thinking, oh, boy, this is bigger than me. I was raised like, don't sweat. You're a nice girl. Don't mess up your hair and eyes, you know. So this whole sports thing is really interesting. I actually met Al Harrington. He was a former Nick who has a brand, Viola, named after his grandmother. Uh, He's up and running in California, and he's looking to sell his stuff in New York. Why not? In San Francisco in December, I also met with Megatron again. I met him and his partner, Rob Sims, in Detroit this past September. They have an amazing company up and running. Uh, They grow. They have dispensaries, and they're really trying to help people in Detroit get back on their feet and feature nice products for people. They personally will talk about their um, football league experiences, what cannabis did for them, and the potential for cannabis. That's really, I think, part of it as well, is that because this has been not legal for so long, the guys in the white shirts and the ties are like, nope, can't have it. And then you have these people really working with it as medicine, not necessarily under doctor supervision, but they get what cannabis can do for people, whether it's athletes, whether it's their parents, whether it's a sick mom with diabetes. Um, there's something going on below the surface that's really interesting and thought-provoking. So keeping all this up and active is very interesting. I actually got a call yesterday from a group of women who want to develop a strain of cannabis that doesn't bring on the munchies. They wanted to inhibit appetite. So I kind of got into talking with them about the minor cannabinoid THCV, how it's really nice for focus, and a little more, you get not hungry, so to speak. So there's so many uses of this plant that we haven't even looked at. If you go into the medical dispensaries in New York, it's all about CBD and THC. Now they talk about a little bit about the terpenes that are in the live resin. But if you go through cannabis literature, you'll find dozens and dozens of minor cannabinoids that have really great active roles. For example, CBG has found to quell anxiety and depression. So kids on the spectrum now are waking up and getting CBD, CBG combos in the morning and having a better day than just the CBD alone or the 19 to 1, 19 part CBD to 1 part THC. CBG seems to be real interest. CBG is actually what we call the mother cannabinoid. And from CBG, we can extract the THC, CBD, and the list goes on and on and on. Well, let me just pick up from there because we're we're running out of time quickly. But, Lynn, the issue of the conditions that qualify if you're a medical patient, with the recreational market, have they added any other symptoms to that list for a medical? Oh, yes. This is where it gets very interesting. Now podiatrists, dentists, nurse practitioners, and midwives can recommend cannabis for patients. And uh, doctors and all of the above are allowed to recommend or suggest cannabis if they feel it will improve the patient's life. So in New York, I'm no longer bound by, like, the big 13 conditions and having to have people bring me notes from psychiatrists saying PTSD. It's my estimation that I believe this will help. I can do it. So that gets very interesting. But I'm also licensed in Connecticut. In Connecticut, I don't have that freedom. There's a strict list. And you've got to stick by it or else they can knock on your door, go through your charts, and give you a really tough time. I had a friend who actually um, 
took care of a patient and used their New York address, which coincidentally was a liquor store. So, man, she had them showing up at her door. They called her and said, we'll be there in 20 minutes. They were there in 18, went through a list of about 20 charts, and wanted to know what she was doing with each of these people. And they're stuck to. So physicians need to be careful. And if you're doing the right thing, not just churning out paperwork, you'll be fine. Yeah, one more reason why the federal government is the key player in all of this and could clear off a lot of these investigations. Sure. It could just make life much simpler. My opinion is this will, we will have international trading cannabis before it's federally legal. We have countries like Malta is now federally legal. There are countries that the whole place is going legal. You have country like Costa Rica that does not have any formal program, but the Department of Health has given permission to a group of women who gift this to patients in need. Hmm. So we see, you know, under the surface, a bunch of people working together trying to help people. And that's really interesting. It sure is, and that means we'll just have to get together again and talk more as things develop. She's Dr. Lynn Porodnik, medical marijuana doctor in Westchester County, New York. You hear she's also licensed in Connecticut. And it's always a pleasure to speak with you, Lynn. We'll talk again real soon. Thank you. Thank you, David. It's always fun to exchange ideas. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2232. Or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at the same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. 